Someday they'll be, be able to preach a sermon that way too. And be a, wouldn't it be easy to just one line at a time, one line at a time? All right, those of you um, that have been with us the last couple of weeks know we've been in our Unoffendable series, and we're going to kind of put a pause on Unoffendable for just, um, not living Unoffendable, but just on the series Unoffendable, because today is our uh, once-a-year Vision Sunday, where we talk about the vision God has given us as a church. We kind of take a step back and make sure that we're following our mission. You know, it's, it's easy to begin something, to, to try to accomplish a certain specific goal and then to continue to do the activity but no longer really be meeting the goal. It happens in the business world. It happens in the church world. It happens in our families. I mean, the way that we as husbands and wives, you know, start treating each other because we, we want to, you know, win the prize. We want to win each other's affections and we, we do certain things and then sometimes we just go through the motions and we're no longer trying to keep or win the heart of our partner. We're just going through activity and it's easy to drift off of mission and everything. And so we take time to do that. Um, we are a week ahead in Undefendable. So we were preaching a week ahead of what you were reading. And so this will just give us time to get caught up. And uh, originally we didn't know exactly when we were going to schedule the Vision Sunday because it was based upon the meeting. And uh, we got a little behind with the, the deacon nominees because I got the forms out. It's all on me. I'll take responsibility for it. I got the forms out to you a little later and uh, than we should have. And so it just took a little while to go through that process. And so uh, today is that day, the lunch right after service. We encourage all of you to stay. Soup and sandwich lunch has been provided and it's a free will donation. And then our annual meeting, uh, you don't have to be a voting partner to, to stay. Stay for that meeting. We welcome everyone to stay to kind of hear the, the vision that God has given us and kind of talk through uh, some of the things that we voted on this past year and then talk about what's coming this next year. And uh, so we encourage you to stay for that as well. And uh, we promise not to keep you longer than we need to. But if you've got your Bible today, I've entitled our sermon today, Fix It. Fix It, which is an interesting title for me, especially with tools, because I don't know how to use most of them, and uh, I really don't know how to fix much of anything, but uh, those of you that have been to my house to fix things and um, have done that for me, thank you, and uh, fixed my cars and put all those things together, because it's just not something God has gifted me for. I mean, I've watched people do it. In fact, just yesterday, Kedrick was trying to change a flat tire, and I was trying to talk him through it, and I'm thinking, I didn't change my first flat tire until I was in my 30s. And so I had Dwayne. I don't know why I needed to change a flat tire. And so it, uh, Dwayne and AAA, I mean, they go perfect together. And so I, I, I literally thought, you know, you're light years ahead of me. In fact, I, my advice to him was to call Dwayne. <laughs> and so it's just, I'm a terrible father, I know. Um, but we do have AAA for him too, so he can make that call. But Fix it, John chapter 16, verse 33. We're going to get to it in just a moment. If you're using the Bibles that are provided for you there in front of you, it's going to be on page 898. You can find it a little bit easier that way. But I want to start with the verse that we started talking about last year, uh, striving for full restoration, encouraging one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And this has really, as a church, become our key verse. We are all about restoration because we believe that throughout the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it has been God's plan to restore creation to what he designed it to be. Jesus came to the earth to make it possible, to bring restoration to us. But like we've already talked about today, sometimes we don't see it with our eyes. And it's something that has to be strived for. 
It does not mean that when we act a certain way that God then blesses us because of our actions because we don't believe we receive anything from God because of what we've done, okay? Everything we get from God is because of his grace and his mercy, But there are times that we have to strive to see restoration take place. We don't know what our worship is doing. We have accounts in Scripture. We have Daniel who prayed for 21 days. And an angel was dispatched the moment he began to pray. But it took 21 days of fasting and prayer for that angel to make it to him. And so sometimes we don't understand why miracles don't happen or why breakthroughs don't come the first moment that we pray because pray because we live in a society where, you know, we expect instant results. I mean, 60 seconds in the microwave is too long. I mean, we want it quicker. We want it faster. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of sowing and reaping. With all of our technology today, Farmers are not able to put a seed in the ground and have it be harvested the next day. It's still the law of sowing and reaping. It takes a while for some of those seeds to grow. And we're going to talk a little bit today about how we strive to make that happen. Because restoration, I believe, we believe as a church, was the mission of Jesus. Jesus tells us in places like John chapter 10 that he came so that we would have life and life to the full. He came to bring restoration. He tells us in Luke chapter 4 that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news, restoration to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom, restoration for the prisoners, recovery of sight, restoration of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's why Jesus came. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is at the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. He should have never been there. But the angel of the Lord told him to go there, and he preaches this sermon, and he's talking to these these devout Gentiles. And he says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. I want you got to see this. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. This is significant. And then he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Not because he was God, but because God was with him. Now, do not get me wrong. We believe Jesus was the Son of God. We believe Jesus was totally God. We also believe that the Scriptures tell us in Philippians chapter 2 that he came to this earth, he laid aside his rights and privileges as God, and he came to the earth, he submitted himself to the Father, he was anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit to do what the Father wanted him to do. He spent time early in the morning, all night long, throughout the day. Often he withdrew to spend time in prayer so that he would know the Father's will, so he He would see what the father was doing, and he could be about the father's business. So he did not do what he did on earth because he was God. In fact, he often referred to himself not as the son of God, but as the son of man. And now you and I have a high priest who doesn't, who can't sympathize with us. He sympathizes with us because he was us. He knows our weakness because he didn't reach into his bag of tricks 
I don't know if I should call his power, his, his, his privileges, his bag of tricks, but he didn't reach into those. He could have. He said himself, I could call legions of angels right now to rescue me. Don't think I couldn't tap into that. But I've chosen to submit myself fully to the Father. I've chosen the path of Son of Man to die in your place. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is accomplished. And we believe that he's passed that mantle now onto the church, onto us, so that we will finish what he started. Not finish in a sense that it needs to be added to because it's all done, but that we can take what he's done and apply it to the situations that we're faced with in our lives. It's like we're exercising his authority over the situations that you and I find ourselves in. I'm not making it up. It's in the scripture. Jesus said himself in John chapter 14, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I go to the Father. Why is it significant? Because he tells us in these next couple chapters, when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that the Father anointed me with so that I could do good things, so that I could heal people of diseases. You're going to be anointed with that same Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell the world what I have done, what I've accomplished. You're going to enforce my justice on the earth just like I've been doing. But for some of us, we don't, we don't really believe that. Oh, I mean, we believe it up here, but we don't believe it in our, our daily lives. And that's why we get discouraged. That's why we get disappointed. That's why we get filled with hopelessness and despair. That's why sometimes we slip into ungodly behavior to try to manipulate situations because we don't like the speed at which God is bringing things to pass. And so we try to help it out. You know, wives, we try to leave tracks where our ungodly husbands can see them. We're just trying to help out the Holy Spirit. And yet Peter tells us that your unbelieving husband is won by your conduct. He's won by you being unoffendable. He's won by you keeping your love on. That's how God works in the lives of people because we overcome evil with good. Because people have been blinded. When Sandy was trying to minister to a customer, that customer was blinded by the God of this age. But she overcame evil with good. And because of that, she disarmed the principalities that were at work in his life. He wasn't the enemy. Oh, it felt like he was the enemy that day, didn't it? But he wasn't the enemy. He was a captive of the enemy. And because of her good behavior, because she overcame evil with good, she disarmed the principalities and allowed the power of God to be at work in his life. And that's what we've been called to do. See, it's easy for us to start coming to church and to start settling for a waiting for restoration mentality and not striving for restoration mentality. It's easy for us to just sit back and say, well, you know, when God wants to heal me or when God wants to bring deliverance or breakthrough, it's easy to just come to church week after week and try to be good moral people and just to wait for the rapture, wait for the trumpet. I'm just waiting for the trumpet. I'm not waiting for the trumpet. I'm striving for full restoration. When the trumpet sounds, I'll be ready, but I'm not just going to sit back and wait for it to happen. And it's easy to drift into that mode, and that's why we take a one Sunday a year, not just so we can have cupcakes for breakfast, 
But we take one Sunday a year to remind ourselves this is why we're here. And as a church, we refuse to settle for anything less than full restoration in our lives, in our church, and in our city. We want every justice to be met with what Jesus has provided for. We do not want to receive his grace in vain, and we do not want to waste one drop of his blood. Amen? So the church, our church, must go forward. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Peter declares that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, Jesus says, you're Peter. And on this rock, he's playing with Peter's name. I don't have time to go into it, but he's not saying he's building his church on Peter. He's saying, I'm building my church on the revelation that you just gave, that I'm the Christ, that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the foundation. And I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, you may have heard this before, but I don't know when you read that verse if you fully understand that gates, the gates of Hades don't attack us. Okay, I mean, the enemy sometimes attacks us, but the gates of Hades don't attack us. Gates are defensive measures. Gates are there to keep people out or to funnel people through a certain area. Gates are there. Good people in, bad people out. But the gates of Haiti, they're there to keep everybody in. We don't want anyone getting out. And the church is meant to storm the gates of hell and release the captives. Proclaim freedom and liberty. But it's easy for the church to slip into the captives are our enemy. The people that have been blinded by the God of this age and who stand up and support abortion and support gay rights and they, they are so evil and the things that they say on TV and it's easy to make them our enemy. They're not our enemy. They're the captives. That's the ones we're supposed to be fighting for just as much as the victims. They're victims too. And so we have to make sure that we keep in mind that we're to be going after them. We're to be building his church. And he has given us everything we need to build his church. Too often churches just sit back and we wait for some prompting when Jesus has already said, as you go, make disciples. He's already said, go, go. What are we waiting for? Go. You're not at your day job just to make a living, just so you can have a house, just so you can wait for the rapture. You're there to release some prisoners. You're there to bring justice to situations. And you did. And we can. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And these days are supposed to remind us, that because it's easy. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to get 25 mean customers in one day. And be like, why do I even try? And then you come home and your spouse is kind of snarky with you too. And you're like, ah, can't I just catch a break? And then your faucet's leaking. And then your car breaks down. And then your kids are acting up. And it's just easy to think, why do I even try? But we are not like those who shrink back. We will have patient endurance because it's been given to us. And we will keep storming the gates of hell. In fact, the reason that we're under attacks most of the time is because we are storming the gates of hell. The, the crazy thing in our world is too many Christians are looking for the perfect church. I'm looking for the church that doesn't have any problems. And you know the old saying, if you ever find the, the perfect church and then you join it, you just ruined it. 
Yeah, some of you get that later. But the, the point is, there isn't a perfect church because there's imperfect people that are the church. So everywhere we go, there's problems. In fact, you remember when we started this series and I told you that the opportunity for an offense is, is inevitable. It's going to happen, all right? Well, guess what? Problems in the church, problems in the world, problems in your life are inevitable. They are coming. In fact, don't take my word for it. Take the words of Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, He's just spent three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, telling his disciples everything. It's like a summation of everything he's taught them, everything they need to remember, because in chapter 17, he's going to pray for them, and he's going to pray for us, and then he's going to get crucified. Okay? So these are his last words to them. And his last words to them are, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. This does not mean that everything in your life is going to be peaceful. It does not mean that all of your relationships are going to be peaceful. It doesn't mean that all of your circumstances are going to just line up perfect. Wow, I love when things fit together nicely. That's not what it means. It means in the midst of everything you face, you will have peace. Why? Because you have the spirit of peace in you. How can you not have peace? He is the spirit of peace. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. In this world, you will have trouble. And yet somehow we think we're going to attend a church that never has problems. We're going to have a marriage that never has problems. We're going to have kids that never have problems. I mean, we're going to have a life that never have. I'm going to find a job where I never have problems. And so we do. We change marriages. We change churches. We change jobs. Hoping that somewhere, someday, sometime, we're going to find that perfect situation that just gives us peace. But peace doesn't come from outside. It comes from within. And so there are problems in the church. And Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. But how many of you know it doesn't look like he's overcome the world? Right? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And it does not look like he's overcome. We remind ourselves of what is true because we don't live by sight. We live by faith. We live by faith in what he has done. And we keep applying his justice until the world listens. Until the enemy is pushed back. And we don't know how long that takes. It could be years of faithfulness and then one day suddenly. And, other, and here's the crazy thing. All of the revivals of the past have been prayed in, obeyed in. I mean, people just diligently sought the Lord, diligently prayed, diligently fasted, diligently walked in obedience, and they just did it over and over. And then we reaped a revival of sorts. We reaped an awakening. But the next generation didn't know the price that was paid by the first generation. So you know what they did? They just kept doing the things that the first generation did, but they didn't do them for the same reasons. They did them because that's what Christians do. And then the third generation, and then you go successive generations, and finally a generation comes up that doesn't know any of it, and they say, why are we doing this stuff? And it's not enough to just keep doing the same things. we got to be doing them for the same reasons. And sometimes we have to adapt our doing to the culture around us. I mean, how many of you see a slide projector up here on the stage today or an overhead projector? No, we adapt to the culture around us. And sometimes we, we think that the methods we use are so sacred that we can't change them. 
And the world isn't being reached. We're not seeking and saving the lost. But hey, we're meeting here till the rapture. And it's time to start making sure that we're doing everything we can to bring people into the kingdom. Never compromising the truth of God's word, but always willing to change anything we need to to make sure other people hear. That's why churches are in coffee shops. Robert Morris, Gateway Church, just planted a church campus in a prison. Who does that? Somebody that wants to bring people into the kingdom. That's who does it. And that's the church we are. We're, God, nothing is sacred. Wherever you want to call us, whatever you want us to do. But back to the trouble. Because we have problems. How many of you know we have problems? You know we have problems? It's okay to admit we have problems. I mean, because every church has problems. And if you are talking to someone and they're like, our church doesn't have problems, they're lying. Because <laughs> there's always problems. You just get to pick what kind of problems you have. Okay, because if you're going out and storming the gates of hell, then you've got like Corinthian church problems. Okay, you've got fast growth problems. You've got widow. more people are coming into the kingdom. You don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to disciple them. If there's chaos, people's lives are a mess and you're trying to help them put things in place and it's just, ah, there's problems. Or if you're not storming the gates of hell and you're just kind of sitting back, then you've got like the slow growth type of problems where we're fighting over our rights and we're fighting over our traditions. We're kind of like the Pharisees. We want to keep things our way. We want to, be, we want to have life nice for us. And so there's always going to be problems, and you get to kind of pick as a church what problems we're going to have. And if you ask me, I'd rather have the Corinthian church type of problems. I'd rather storm the gates of hell and have those. Because I've grown up in church, I've been in it 43 years, and I've had enough slow growth problems, I'm done with them. Okay, those just aren't worth it anymore, and it's time to have some fast growth problems. It's time to go out and storm the gates of hell and help people fix their messy lives. Yeah. Amen. That's good stuff. Now, here's the thing. With problems, we know these scriptures, but let me remind you of them because it's good to remind you. Consider it joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. See, somehow, as nice Pentecostals, we think if we just get baptized in the Holy Spirit, we'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If I just come to an altar and get prayed for, I'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But the Bible says the only way you can become mature and complete, not lacking anything, is to be faced with a problem where you actually have to apply by the Spirit the truth to that problem and you grow. Perseverance. But if we keep changing marriages and we keep changing churches and we keep changing jobs and we keep changing to try to, you know, make our lives better, we don't grow. And so our maturity is not how many years we've been saved. It's how many years we've submitted to the Father so that we can grow. And that's what James is telling us. And for some reason, we don't understand that when it comes to our daily lives. I mean, we understand it in church and we say amen. But then when we're in the throes of it in real life, we're like, I don't like this. So I'm going to be offendable today. I don't like this. So I'm going to try to, you know, slander that person. Or I'm going to fight fire with fire and not overcome evil with good. And we slip into ungodly methods to try to make those problems go away. Peter tells us those same things. In his letter to the church, he says, in this, you greatly rejoice. He's talking about trials, okay? You greatly rejoice. For a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Okay, your, your faith is worth more than gold. So he says, the genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The only way that can happen is if we stand up under those problems and trials. Dear friends, he says in chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You know, as a pastor, you go to different events or you go around town, and every once in a while, I mean, hypothetically, I don't know that I've... Hypothetically, let's just say hypothetically. You walk up to someone, and they know you're the pastor of a church, and they say, hey, what's going on over at your church? I hear about the problems. Really? Why, how do you hear about the problems? And why do you hear about the problems? And you know, it's funny. It doesn't matter where you go in the state. Sometimes you hear comments like that. But here's the thing. We're supposed to have problems. And it's up to you and us to start fixing those problems. Not just talking about them. We fix them. We fix it. And that's the sermon today. It's almost like that stop it. We're going to stop saying stop it now. We're going to say fix it. Fix it. <laughs> we'll tell you how to fix it in a minute. But in the book of Acts, as you read through the book of Acts, don't be, I mean, read through it. They were growing. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to solve problems. They didn't know they were being persecuted. Then they were, the, these ladies, these widows weren't, their needs weren't being met. So then they had, okay, we need other deacons. We need to fix the problem. They come to the apostles. They're like, hey, our widows are being neglected. And the apostles are like, fix it. <laughs> no, they made a decision. They said, okay, here's how we're going to fix it. We need seven men. We need men full of the Holy Spirit, and they're going to wait on tables. Wow, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit to wait on tables? Yes. You need to be full of the Holy Spirit for everything. And so Paul tells us, continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you get Paul and Barnabas, and this is a head scratcher, because Paul and Barnabas, they've been doing a great work, and they've been in ministry together, and then John Mark bails on them, and Paul's kind of offended by that. Well, he's probably not offended. That, I don't know if he's offended, but he doesn't want to take Mark anymore. I don't want to take him. He abandoned us. And Barnabas is like, well, I'm taking Mark because I'm son of encouragement and I encourage people. And they split up. And we, what do you do with that? Who's right? I mean, could, could someone find me the verse that says whether Paul or Barnabas was right in that disagreement? Because I really want to know. I mean, because in the church, there's always a right and a wrong, right? I mean, my side's right and your side's wrong. That's what we do. But we don't know which one was right, but the, the gospel actually got spread twice as fast. Huh, that's interesting. And then the Jerusalem council. What do we do with all these Gentiles? Oh my goodness. What are we going to do? So they start talking back and forth and they're debating and then one guy stands up, James stands up and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. One guy. I mean, we think that James was kind of the unofficial head of the church at the time. I mean, he, it wasn't like he had all authority and all power. If he would have said something totally unbiblical, totally wrong, they would have said, no, 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 no. I mean, Paul did it to Peter when Peter started treating the Gentiles like, oh, I can't be with them because I don't want to offend my Jewish friends. He stands up and says, Peter, what are you doing? Stop it. That's not how we act in the kingdom. Oh, let's not do that today. 
I mean, let's just tell everyone else about Peter. Hey, did you see Peter? Yeah, he wasn't eating with the Gentiles. I know, Peter wasn't eating with the Gentiles. And the scripture says, go to Peter. And the early church did it. They had problems all over the place. Corinthians was a mess. You would think that Paul at some point in that letter would be like, shut the doors. But he never did. He just kept telling them, hey, fix this, fix this, fix this. He calls them saints. Saints? They ain't acting like Because Paul doesn't just see the problems, he sees the solutions. And you and I need to be like that. We need to be able to look at these problems that we're facing and know what we're going to do about them. And so whose responsibility is the problem? I'm going to give you three things, and I'm going to give them to you in 19 minutes or less. Let's see how we do. Three things. Whose responsibility is it to fix this problem? Here's the thing. Number one, there are some problems in my life, some problems in our church, that the responsibility to fix them is on me. Now, you need to say it's on me, you, not me, okay? So your name. It's your responsibility. Whether you're a leader, a boss at work, a parent, or in the, wherever you are in an organization, wherever you are in a family, you can actually be the change. You can actually be a part of the solution. It's up to you to fix it. It really is on us, on me. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the apostle's talking to Timothy, who's the head of the church, and he says this, don't look, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So Paul says, don't, so Timothy gets up one Sunday and says, guys, stop looking down on me because I'm young. Paul said so. That's not what he tells him to do, is it? Okay. He says, but do this, be an example. Be an example. When people look down on you, raise the bar in your life. You be an example in, in, in love, in faith, in conduct, in speech, in purity. You just keep raising the bar. Don't let them look down on you. You just keep raising the bar. He, he doesn't say go and set them in their place. Go and tell them you're the leader of that church. He just says you fix it. And here's how you fix it. You step up. You step into your calling. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. And do not neglect your gift which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders lays their hands on you. Do not neglect. Literally, stir up the gift that's in you. Every single one of us have those gifts inside of us that God has put in our lives, and it's up to us to stir them up. Stop complaining about all the problems. Stir up the gift. If God puts you in a place where you see a problem, you're a part of the solution. That's what he intends. He doesn't intend for you to be the mouthpiece to tell everybody what's wrong. That's not what we're called to. We're called to fix it. We're called to bring justice. And sometimes it's by laying our lives down. Sometimes it's by overcoming evil with good. Sometimes it's by turning the other cheek. Sometimes it's by going that second mile. Well, we don't like that. But that's what he's called us to. Because that's what disarms the powers that are at work. Too often, we look at a problem, we look at a situation, and we just, we're either, we're paralyzed, or we, you know, we say things like, well, you know, I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, or we just complain about it, and it's time for us to start making decisions. It's time for us to start setting the example. It's time for us to start stirring up the gifts, not just hoping that the problem will go away and solve itself. Can I tell you something, especially if you're married, 
Problems do not solve themselves and go away. Okay? You know what we do with them? I mean, we always say, well, you know, I've just moved on. No, you didn't. You suppressed it. You suppressed it. And then one day you get in an argument and stuff starts flying out. And one of you is like, dude, where is all of this coming from? Well, it's just the stuff you've suppressed because you didn't fix it. Got real quiet in here today. But that's what happens. So whether you're a parent, whether you're a leader, whether you're a boss, whether you're just an employee in that organization, start making decisions that lead to solutions. Solve those things. God, what do I, Holy Spirit, help me. You've put me here not just to see this problem. Uh, something in me is a part of the solution. Help me to do it. And then give me the patient endurance I need to stay the course. Oh, I've heard the stories of people who get a word from the Lord. Oh, the prophetic guy, he just called me out of a crowd and he spoke over my life and he knew all these things. And here's what I need to do. And like six weeks later, they're not doing any of it. What changed? Well, you know, yeah, you just didn't stick with it. I mean, either the prophetic guy was right or he was wrong. And you thought that that one momentary decision was just going to be like snapping your fingers and voila, everything would come. No, you patiently endure and you keep going. You stay that course. You fix it. Not only are we supposed to fix them ourselves, but sometimes the fix to problems, number two, are outside of ourselves. I'm not saying that it's up to us to fix everyone else's problems. Okay, some of us think that's our calling in life is to fix everyone else's problems. People who have never had a child absolutely know how to raise children and want to tell every parent how to do it. Okay, it's not our calling to fix everybody's problems. But there is a sense in the scripture that we do not just look out for ourselves. We take responsibility for each other. Not in a lording over someone kind of way, but coming under and serving them. Lifting them up, not telling them how to do it, but showing them, loving them, restoring them gently. That's what the scripture calls us to. In fact, the, the Bible in Romans chapter 12 calls us a part of a body. All of us are a part of a body. And we have been placed in a place, we lost our signal. Hopefully it'll come back. We've been placed in a place where we all belong to each other. We all belong to each other. That's what the scripture says. Isn't that crazy? Do we live like that? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, not only do we belong to each other, but we each need each other. And you and I can't say to each other, I don't need you. But we do it all the time. That's how we live our lives. Like, I don't need you. It just Now, I mean, we can't get our worth. We can't get our identity. We can't, we can't expect everybody outside of me to solve my problems. Those are up to me. But neither can we walk away from the body and say, well, I don't need you. I'll just take care of it on my own. Oftentimes, people will join a church and they see a problem, but they don't want to speak up. Oh, it's not really my place. I'm new here. It's, it, what if... God placed you in the body to be the solution to that problem. It's time for you to speak up. Oh, yeah, there, there are right channels to speak through. There are right ways to speak up. I mean, in America, everybody wants to speak up, but we're not speaking up in honor. We're not speaking up in respect. We're not speaking up in a way that promote, promotes peace. We're just speaking 
speaking out. No, there's a way to speak up right. And you and I have to choose that path because God has placed us in this body and there are are solutions that are in us that we need to see. How many of you know when you look at something and you see a problem, not everyone who looks at it sees it the way you do? Did you know that? Or did I just like completely blow your mind with that? You know, we were walking through the, the store in Sioux Falls the other day, and uh, we were in Sam's Club getting some stuff, and, and uh, I was talking to Christy, and I'm, you know, if, I, if it, we were looking for noodles, and I said, if I were in charge of this store, I would place the noodles by the olive oil, and the olive oil was over there, so let's go look there. And Micaiah looks at me and says, you realize everyone's not like you? <laughs> I'm like, I, I know, and that's what's wrong with our world. <laughs> but we sometimes don't, we get all upset that somebody's ignoring a problem. Maybe they don't see it. And maybe you've been called alongside of them to help them see it. But if you don't speak up in the right way, they're not going to see it. Because not every solution is a good solution. And just because, I mean, I know that we all think our solutions are the good ones, but they're not. And we've been put in a body so that we can come up with the right solutions together to the problems. In fact, I love it when people look at something and say, hey, hey, I got that. I can fix that. I can do that. Because here's the thing. You can only do what you can do. I mean, if I, if I walk downstairs and there's, you know, a, a toilet that's spraying water everywhere, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll, I know where to find the shutoff. I'll shut it off, and then I'll call someone else. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do. Help. And so I'll call on someone else that can fix it, and they'll come, and they'll fix it. In Ephesians chapter 4, it would be on the screen, but it's not on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, says, Christ himself gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. The body is held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The only way the body can grow and be built up is if each part does its work. We need each other. We've been called to each other. How many of you know right now our church is without a janitor? And so people are stepping up and they're helping. But you know what? Everybody could be the janitor. Everybody could say, you know what? I'm not going to use the pew rack as a garbage can anymore. I'm not going to let my coffee cup be under the pew. I'm not going to just leave my papers here. I'm going to find a garbage can that had been conveniently placed throughout the lobby area for your convenience, and I just put it away. I mean, you don't have to come and clean the toilets, but if everybody did their part, see how that works? Just like at home. And so all of us have to do our part, not just in cleaning the building, but in whatever God has called us to do. And here's the thing. Sometimes fixing problems is hard work. It takes effort. But if we're going to strive for full restoration, that's what we're going to do. And then the third one. There are some problems in our lives that only God can fix. Only God can fix. You know, that's why as a church, we meet every Tuesday night for House of Prayer because we recognize that there are problems that we face as a church 
that our only hope is God. He's the only way to help. Remember when Moses was with the Israelites in the desert and he was trying to solve all their problems? And his father-in-law comes to him and says, now, you know, when our father-in-law offers us advice, guys, I know pride is like, yeah, I got this, Dad, thanks. But his father-in-law comes to him and says, this isn't good for you. You're going to die. You can't solve all these people's problems. You know what you should do? You should find some leaders and you should help. I mean, they know like the little things. Let the people go to them. And the big ones that they don't know what to do, then they'll come to you. And luckily, Moses didn't have pride. He was the most humble man in all the earth, it tells us in the Bible, even though he wrote it. And so he wrote that, but he, he showed us it because he did that. And then in Numbers chapter 11, Moses then is talking to God because God's like, the people are complaining again. They want meat. They're sick of this manna. And Moses says this to God. Numbers chapter 11, verse 14. I cannot carry all these people by myself. This burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. <laughs> Praise God. If you've ever been a leader and you've prayed that, I mean, I love it. He's like, I am so tired of this. If you would just kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. And look at what the Lord says to him. Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting so that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the power of the spirit that's on you and I will put it on them. And they will share the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Oh, that's just like his father-in-law. That's some good advice, Lord. Now the Lord, is, I'm going to solve the meat problem now, will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. But Moses said, here I am. I love it. Conversation with God. I love this. Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if all the flocks and herds were slaughtered? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught? He's like, Lord, I am not saying that. You are not going to get me up in front of those people and say, you're going to eat it for a month and you're going to loathe that. Have you looked around? I mean, sometimes as a leader, the Lord says, you know what? I want you to tell this to the people. And you, you really are. You're like, Lord, I don't think that's a good idea. Because that, that really looks impossible. And, and if a pastor would do that today, we'd be like, this pastor needs to get out of this church. Let's vote him out. Who does he think he is? I mean, eat it for a month more. I don't know where he's going to get that money. But the Lord says to Moses, is the arm of the Lord too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true. A young man ran and told Moses then, after the prophets come and after all the people come and the Lord puts a spirit on them, hey, Moses, there's Eldad and Medad and they're in the camp prophesying. And Joshua says, he's been Moses' aide. He says, Moses, stop them. But Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. I mean, I love this passage. And I wish we had a lot of time to get into it, but there's so much there. Can you go to the next slide? I, I kind of lost my signal too. So, But he, he tells them, I wish the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Because there are some things I can't solve. There are some things, no matter how many people are around us, we can't solve. 
And there are some things that only God can solve. And that's why we need His Spirit on all of us. Because only God can do it. And Moses had that in his heart all the way back in the book of Numbers. Remember when Peter was arrested and thrown in prison? What did the church do? They prayed for him. And what could God do? He sent an angel to release him. I mean, crazy stuff. What would happen in America if a pastor got imprisoned? Call our senators and congressmen. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's what we do. We rely on the doctor. We rely on the lawyer. We rely on our laws and our rights and our privileges and our powers. And we sometimes, even us good Pentecostals, we've stopped believing that God actually wants to fight for us. That God actually wants to call us as a church to do things that are absolutely crazy. That are abs- There's no way we can do that. There's no way. That, that's not even possible. You're right. If God doesn't show up, it's not possible. But what if that's what he's calling us to? And if all we're going to do is look at it through our mental eyes and our mental mind, and we're not going to let the spirit that God has put on us rise up and say, yeah, that's what I'm calling you to. There's some things that only God can do. You and I have to start believing God again for the unexpected for the impossible things. I don't want to just be Pentecostal in theology. I want to start expecting it in my daily lives. I'm going to start expecting that the next time I pray for someone to be healed is the time they're going to see God move in power. Every single time. It's not up to me to produce the results, but it is up to me to take the step of faith. I can't walk on water, but I can step out of the boat. And you and I have got to be, we got to stop being afraid of making mistakes. we got to stop being afraid of failure. See, I've pastored this church for 20 years. And you don't think it's hard in, after 20 years of going one direction to all of a sudden make a hard left and say, hey, I feel like God wants us to go this way. And I was, with fear and trembling, told our leaders some of the things that God had put in my heart. And all of them, they just looked at me and said, I don't know how it's going to happen. I think it's crazy, but I do feel like God's in it. Okay, well, that really doesn't help. I mean, it helps a little because it's good to know that God's in it, but I don't know. I just know that there are lost people in Huron that no one is reaching, and it's time for us to do whatever it takes to reach them. We need to make sure that we're willing to get out of the boat. There's a story in the book, Draw the Circle by Mark Batterson, that we've read a few times, and it's a story about a missionary it's actually the story about a painting that hangs in our general super, former general superintendent's office, Dr. George Wood. And Marx writes it this way. I want to read it to you. He says, Dr. George Wood has an amazing painting in his office of an African man standing on a high hillside overlooking the ocean. There's a large steamship on the horizon and a smaller canoe coming toward the shoreline. In this instance, the story is worth a thousand paintings. It symbolizes the importance of going before we're set or ready. In 1908, newly commissioned missionaries John and Jesse Perkins were on board of a steamship rounding the coast of Liberia. They knew God had called them to Africa, but like Abraham, they didn't know exactly where God wanted them to go. So they purchased tickets and trusted that God would tell them where to get off. How many of you are willing to get on a steamship in the early 1900s 
around the coast of Liberia and just get off wherever the Spirit says. Some of us aren't even willing to, like, write a tithe check. <laughs> you know, whatever. So they purchased tickets. They trusted God to tell them where to get off. As the ship made its way around Garraway Point, they sensed the Holy Spirit prompting them to get off the ship. Unknown to the Perkinsons, there was a young man living in the region named Jasper Toe. He was a God-fearing man who practiced the religious rituals passed down by his ancestors, but he had never heard the name of Jesus. One night, he looked into the night sky and prayed a simple prayer. If there is a God in heaven, help me find you. As Jasper stood under the stars, a voice that he had never heard before spoke to him. Go to Garraway Beach. You will see a box on the water with smoke coming out of it. From that box on the water will come people in a small box. These people in this small box will tell you how to find me. Jasper Toe traveled seven days on foot to Garraway Beach, arriving on Christmas Day, 1908. From the shore, he saw a black box, a steamship, floating on the water with smoke coming out of it. That is when John Perkins and his wife sensed the Holy Spirit saying, Get off the ship here. This is where I want you to go. When they went to the captain of the ship and asked him to be let off the ship, he said, I cannot let you off the boat here. This is cannibal country. People go in there and never come back. John Perkins insisted, God wants us to get off the boat. The captain brought the steamship to a halt. And the Perkinsons were placed in a mammy chair that swung them over the side of the ship. They got into a canoe along with all of their belongings. They rowed toward the shore in that little box. When they got to the shore, Jasper Toe was waiting to welcome them. He motioned for them to follow him, and they did. They could not speak each other's languages, but the Perkinsons followed Jasper Toe all the way back to his village. They eventually learned the language of the people there. They started the first church in that village, and Jasper Toe was their first convert. Those who knew Jasper Toe described him as one of the godliest men they had ever met, and his legacy is the hundreds of churches that he helped establish in the country of Liberia. See, we all want that story. We're not willing to buy the ticket. We're not willing to get off the ship. In fact, when the captain says it's cannibal country, we're like, oh, maybe we should pray again. Maybe the Holy Spirit didn't say get off here. That doesn't make sense. No, they appealed. They didn't tell him, hey, we're getting off whether you like it or not. They appealed to him. We've got to get off this ship. For all intents and purposes, everyone who looks at this story would think those people are nuts. If CNN would report it today, they'd be like, these people are nuts. And yet there are thousands of churches in Liberia today because of two people and their willingness. Mark says, what if the Perkinsons had ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit? What if they had dismissed the God idea as a bad idea? What if they had asked why instead of why not? What if they decided to play it safe and stay on the ship? I'm sure God could have intervened in another way, and I like to think that he would have. But who can calculate the opportunity cost when we ignore the prompting of the Spirit and miss divine appointments, faith is not faith till it's acted upon. See, unfortunately, there are problems in our lives, even though we're responsible for some, other people are responsible to help us, and the Spirit, only God can help. 
There are some problems in our lives that you and I never on this side of eternity are ever going to see. We're never going to see them work out. We're always going to have questions. And there's one last scripture I want to share with you today from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You and I know that we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. You see, failure isn't having problems. Failure is giving up. Failure isn't making mistakes. Failure is quitting. We've come too far to quit now. This church has been in Huron for over 80 years. We've come too far to quit now. And so today, as we close this service, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge every member of this body. This call to strive for full restoration means it's time for us to start overcoming the problems and obstacles as a church that we face. And there are some problems that each of us need to take responsibility for. And just by our own example, we need to start striving. We need to start stirring up the gift that's in us. We can't just sit back and wait for restoration to come. You and I need to start engaging fully in this and start striving for restoration. It's not about what I can't do. It's what I can do. Every single one of us has to be willing to trust each other, to connect to the body, to encourage each other, to, to, to restore people gently, to, to follow our leadership, to trust the leadership, to, to listen for what the Holy Spirit is saying, not just what our eyes see, but what the Spirit is saying. We have to be committed to fast and to pray and to seek God and not just be Pentecostal in our theology, but to be Pentecostal in our practice. And so here's how we're going to close today. I want to pray for us as a church on this Vision Sunday. And then we're going to be dismissed and we're going to go right into lunch. And it's great. We don't even have to go anywhere. So it's okay. I went a few minutes over. Except for the fact that I told you I could do it in 19 minutes and obviously I couldn't. I blame Jasper Tell. But if you're here and you say, you know what? I want to take the challenge. I want to take the personal responsibility to solve the problems in this church to be an example, to step in, to step up, to stir up the gift that's in me, to connect to this body, to no longer say, I don't need you, but to trust that the God who planted you here has a purpose for you here. And to fully rely on his spirit for it. And if that's you, as I close in prayer, I want you to stand to your feet and say, that's me, I'm gonna accept that challenge. Here we go. If that's you, stand to your feet. Father, we hear your voice today. We know it's your voice. God, we trust your word. We know that in this world, we will have problems. In this church, we will have problems. And God, we will no longer define our success or failure by the problems that we're having. God, we're going to not just look for the problems. We're not going to talk about the problems. We're not going to just go around sharing the problems. God, we're going to look for the solutions. We're going to trust the solutions that you've put in your word. We're going to trust the solutions that you've put in our hearts. God, we're going to lead by example. We're going to lead by example in our purity, in our faith, in our conduct, in our speech. We're going to overcome evil with good. God, we're going to take responsibility. We're going to trust again. We're going to connect again. We're not going to say that we don't need the members of this body. We're going to trust your word, God, not just in our minds. We're going to trust it in our lives. 
We're gonna trust where you've put us, how you fitted us. We're gonna yield to the leading of your spirit, even when it doesn't make sense. Holy Spirit, we need you. All of this is impossible without you. You're the one that gives us peace. God, even when you call us to make decisions that seem in the natural like decisions we should never make, we want to be led by the peace of your spirit. God, we don't want to rely on the people outside of this body to tell us what to do. We don't want to rely on the people of this world to tell us what to do. We want to hear you. We want to trust you. God, we want to lean into one another. We want to hear the spirit that you've placed in each of us. And so, Holy Spirit, thank you for the years that you have been faithful to this church. Thank you for those that have gone before us. God, we are surrounded not by just the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that have lived for 80 years in this city. God, that have been a part of First Assembly of God, that have been a part of Huron Gospel Tabernacle, that have been a part of Huron First Assembly of God, that are now a part of Restoration Church. And God, we want to receive that baton from them and we want to finish this leg of the race and we want to do it well. And so God, help us to be a part of that solution, to begin to fix the problems that exist in our body and that exist in our city. And God, to do it for the glory of your name. Father, I pray for our fellowship time together today. I pray for this meal that has been prepared for us. God, I pray your blessing on that food. I pray your blessing upon those that have prepared it for us. And God, I ask that as we visit around the table, God, that you would help us to encourage one another, that you'd help us to strengthen one another in our conversations, that you'd help us even in those moments to be led by your spirit, God, to listen for his voice and to minister one to another. God, I pray for our meeting today and for the decisions that we're going to need to make. Holy Spirit, guide us in that meeting. Guide us through that conversation, I pray. Holy Spirit, continue to lead and guide this church in every way we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you need to be dismissed or you want to head into lunch, you can. But we always want to make prayer available. If you're here and you haven't yet been prayed for, our prayer team is going to be here in the front. and We'd love the opportunity to pray with you before you leave today. And so if you want to be prayed for, come find us. Otherwise, be dismissed. Head into the lunch and uh, we'll all join you in just a little bit. God bless you as you go.